Hi, this is Phil Lairness, sitting alongside my wife, Lily Lairness. As we travel through the third decade of the 21st century, it's good to know that the Midweek Drive and Midweek Drive Morning Editions continue to produce a minimum of four hours of weekly audio goodness on Siren Radio and southsidebroadcasting.podbean.com. Why do you have that glazed expression on your face, Lil? Too many numbers in that announcement. 1897, a very auspicious year. Can't actually quite remember it myself, but it was an auspicious year because it was the year in which the Blue Cross charity was actually founded. Yeah, 125 years ago. So happy birthday to Blue Cross. And indeed to talk about the way in which animal welfare has changed over the last century. And we're delighted to welcome the Head of Welfare Standards, Education and Support Services at the aforementioned Blue Cross. That's the fabulous Tracy Geneva. How are you, Tracy? I'm fine, thank you. Excellent. So uh, clearly you weren't around either when uh, 1897 actually rolled up, unless it was a past life. But we've seen some changes, I think it's fair to say, in terms of animal welfare in that time. Yes, we have. This uh, anniversary has really given us an opportunity to look back at our amazing history and also look forward at what we want to do in the future. I mean, Clearly, people are aware of other based charities. Blue Cross seems to be one of those which I must admit, uh, until relatively recently, seemed to go a little bit under the, uh, uh, the, the, the radar, really. But I mean, this whole notion of pets changing lives and uh, Blue Cross changing theirs is, is really critical in terms of the, the tremendous work that you've been doing. I mean, you know, just talk us through some of the, the kind of milestones and uh, achievements that you've put together over the last uh, one and a quarter centuries. Yes, well, um, back in 1897, the world was a very different place and there were a lot of uh, working animals around, particularly horses. Um, and we used to do things like scrub the, the water troughs out for them so they didn't get contagious diseases. But um, in 1906, we set up a, a, a big hospital in London for animals, which we believe was the first of its kind. Um, and we've been open every, every day ever since, helping uh, pets and their owners get through their most difficult times. Um, we've also got rehab homing sites around um, and uh, 80 years ago our Grimsby hospital opened its doors uh, we've been in a few sites around Grimsby and we're there to support people on low incomes when their pets get poorly or injured um, and we're able to help them through that time uh, we've got an education service which um, offers education and advice to young people and adults and, and that is nationwide we do a lot of work around the country. We can do it online or face to face. And then we've got a pet bereavement service, which has been running for over 25 years, which is a helpline um, when people are facing the loss of a pet or have gone through the loss of a pet and just want to talk it through with somebody. I mean, we've been delighted on both Siren Radio and indeed Southside Broadcasting for the Midweek Drive and other shows to uh, to regularly sort of feature Blue Cross. Um, but it is interesting in terms of the perception of how Britain as an animal-loving country has kind of changed and so on. I mean, I think it's fair to say, sadly, people still tend to view animals uh, or can some in some instances view animals in a negative sense. But it is, not, it is good to see that a third of us are now seeing our pets as an equal and respected member of the family. So... Uh, I suppose uh, rights for our furry friends have obviously been to the fore here. 
Yes, and I think the pandemic um, has really made people appreciate the pets because they've been real companions right by your side when you're working from home or your school, you know, home educating the children. Pets have been there and, and we found that about 60% of people have, have noticed that change in their, their sort of views of their pets during that time. Mm. Um, and pets have, have been, you know, close to the heart of Blue Cross for many years. Um, we've got a lovely story of a, of a dog that earned a Blue Cross medal in the Second World War uh, when the family home was bombed and he uh, dug out and dug out the, the, the little baby that was stuck in there. Then he went back and, and told them that the, the owner was there, the lady of the house was there, and also it rescued their cat as well. So, um, so pets and families are just so intertwined. They are part of our lives. And this is something which we regularly see, and you don't just have to be uh, looking at the uh, various videos on, on YouTube to actually see the range of uh, uh, caring, sharing, and, and quite inspirational activities that our animal friends get up to. And I suppose that is something which is, is really critical in terms of you know, the sustainability area. We talk about the environment, how pets can actually be really tremendous psychological assistance uh, to, to our kind of day-to-day -day lives. Yeah, they really do help with our mental health. Um, and um, people have found that they combat things like loneliness. Um, they improve their lives when they're having a, a really bad day. Walking your dog means that you're often saying hello to other dog owners and you're actually having that bit of human contact as well. So your, your pets are, are enablers for that. Um, and um, yeah, horses as well, but it's something Blue Cross deals with. And um, uh, your horses are, are are great for exercise and getting to know other people with with like minds. It's it's a great hobby, but you've got that loving relationship between you and your horse too. I mean, we talked about uh, back in the day, uh, there were uh, folk who'd actually see uh, animals simply as uh, means to an end of uh, hunting, transport, gambling and, and so on. However, in the 21st century, we've still been covering stories like uh, puppy breeding, uh, illegal puppy breeding, uh, rehoming, um, of the need to rehome, et cetera, online scams, uh, and so on and so forth. Are these things which you think are getting better, Tracy, or I mean, are, are we kind of improving them? Obviously, we, we, we've discussed them, we've shone the spotlight of publicity on them, but you know, is there a sign that they are genuinely getting better and that our relationship with our, uh, our pets across the, the, the country, uh, be they horses or indeed uh, more smaller uh, animals, uh, is actually improving? I think there are trends. If I'd been talking to you 10 years ago about pet trends, we'd have been talking about status dogs. Do you remember those conversations mm -hmm. where people had big, powerful dogs to protect themselves and, and they were worrying other people? Um, at the moment, the trend is for people to buy quite flat faced breeds of dog, uh, such as pugs and French bulldogs. And unfortunately, because of the unscrupulous breeders and the, and the demand from the public to want these animals, um, they are being poorly bred and they have problems like uh, continuous headaches and not being able to breathe properly, not being able to just sort of run around and, and be a dog. And it's not just dogs, there's cats with, with these problems and even rabbits as well. And, and with rabbits, we find their teeth grow in all sorts of directions because their jaws aren't quite lined up enough so I think it's trends rather than I don't think I think you will always have good and bad in in all walks of life but I think it's people making the right choices and that's what we try to do try to um, help people make the right choices when they choose a pet and then those choices throughout its life to make sure that they have long and happy lives. 
We mentioned the pandemic earlier. Can't really get away from it, even though we're supposedly at the end of the uh, the whole sequence. That's clearly had an impact in terms of fundraising for charities across the board. Um, is the sustainability of Blue Cross in any way threatened? Is it a case of people still need to obviously be conscious of this and mindful of this when they're thinking of donations to make and so on and so forth? Well, through the pandemic, um, our shops, for example, were closed. Uh, we were one of the first charity shops to get back open when we were allowed to. So income streams have been a bit tricky and people, um, you know, if they're worried about their jobs, may stop their regular giving. But on the whole, our Blue Cross supporters are amazing people. They understand the work we do and they understand the benefits of pets. So we're always, uh, always trying to uh, find new ways of funding. Um, and we are hopeful that uh, we, the future looks bright. We're looking at how we can you know, increase our reach so we can help people more nationally, not just in local areas. It's been 125 years, as we said, 1897. Uh, it's uh, estimated that you've uh, impacted on a positive way uh, nearly 38 million lives. Uh, I see you've already got some objectives and targets for the next three years uh, in terms of looking to uh, uh, help more than 120,000 pets. So clearly um, the overall objectives of Blue Cross and those long-term aims are very much in place. Yes, we've got we've got ambitious plans. We always do have ambitious plans. Um, and it, always in our hearts, we want to help more people with their pets. We want to keep them together and we want them to have a good life together. And whether that's through our education or our veterinary services or through our rehoming and also our behaviour advice as well. That's really important. So we're, we're trying to support people when they need us in terms of in times of crisis um, so that they can enjoy their pets. And from a personal point of view, Tracy, what's been your own particular Blue Cross highlight from uh, uh, you know being as head of welfare services or welfare yeah, standards? Yeah, so so uh, seventeen years ago, I was lucky enough to uh, be able to set up the education service, um, and from that time, we've seen I think about half a million young people in schools and groups across the country, and so I just feel that I was uh, a bit of a catalyst to help that happen. So that's been my highlight. Fantastic. Uh, and just a, a final point in terms of people wanting to actually find out more about Blue Cross, simply a case of put it into the search engine and uh, the good things will come up. Indeed, bluecross.org.uk. Tracy Geneva, um, many thanks indeed. Head of Welfare Standards at uh, and, and Education and Support Services at Blue Cross. Uh, keep on keeping on and undoubtedly keep up with the excellent work. Thank you very much. 17, 17, that's the number of diets that uh, folk will probably be trying in their lifetime. And that means probably <laughs> one every other year and changing this and changing that, etc. Well, maybe we need to actually focus that in terms of good habits being exactly that, good habits that we should get into right from the start. And uh, to address this, we've got a dynamic duo, two fabulous individuals. Uh, first of all, the awesome uh, psychotherapist <laughs> extraordinaire, Holly Rubin. How are you, Holly? Oh, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? <laughs> Excellent. And then the equally awesome, and even excessively awesome, because she's always, <laughs> always a delight to feature on the programme, is the fabulous Nadia Sawala. How are you, Nadia? Oh, hello. Lovely to see you. Good to get you. Of course we can. Magic of Zoom, you see. Radio, radio with pictures. It's just a whole <laughs> new world. They'll be, be saying it's television before too long. Uh, Harley, <laughs> let's come to you. Were you surprised by the finding is, is in this? I mean, here we are kind of heading through January and we're getting to the stage where already I think probably people were saying, oh, I can't be bothered with this diet. Let's just pack it in. 
Unfortunately, I'm not surprised about the fact that we are in January and that means for so many, it has always meant, okay, new year, new me. And how am I going to get that? And people tend to go right away to fitness and to fads and to diets and how am I going to improve on myself? But really, I'm so excited to be joining David Lloyd with this new campaign, a new pledge that says we're actually going to shift things a little bit and we're going to walk away from that. We're going to say, how do we look at our ourselves and this new idea around wellness and lifetime, lifetime wellness, sustainable wellness, not just about January starting and stopping so quickly? I mean, this is critical to the whole system because there might be people who say, I really want to look like Nadia Sawala. Well, I'm sorry, <laughs> you don't have the genetics for policy on that thing. But Nadia, talk <laughs> us through your own thoughts on this, this whole notion of getting that pledge to commitment and actually realising that this is a lifetime thing and not just something which well, we pack in as soon as we actually hit Blue Monday. <laughs> well, the thing is, it's such a difficult shift, isn't it? I mean, I've spent my whole adult life jumping on and off every single diet that was shown to me. I'm so relieved that um, when I was a teenager, I didn't also have the influences coming at me as well with all the promises with strange machinery and waist trimmers and, you know, big butts, tiny waists. It was warped enough from just the movies and magazines for me, but it wasn't as warped as it is now. Um, it's, it's very worrying as a mom trying to undo what's constantly being fed out. But the only way that I feel I have any real power in that hopefully my girls come up in a different way to me is to just show them by what I do. So I, 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 I will never go on a diet again for the rest of my life. I've made that wellness pledge. I will never because I come off it. I put on more weight. I feel a sense of failure. It's ineffective for both my mind and body. So I, the way that I eat now is the way that I'll eat until the day I die. The, I need to lose a few pounds only because I want to be really well. My father has diabetes and has a heart condition, but I think I look great because I've finally got to a place of acceptance through very warped thinking. I used to cry myself to sleep about the way that I looked. I was four and a half stone heavier, but actually I cried the most when I was probably my thinnest because I still mm. felt ugly and overweight. And that's how crazy this always is. So this brilliant research by David Lloyd, uh, it doesn't surprise me or Holly. I think, you know, 64% of people admit that they never see success from these quick fixes with diet and fitness. They never, and that they'll pay, they'll spend something like 3,200 pounds on these fads. So the first thing is to say it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. How many have I been on and it doesn't work? What can I do that makes my heart sing, that gives me more energy? So for me, I started weight training at a gym because I need better bones and muscles. I, I do tiny runs. I'm trying to work up to couch to 5K. And I do yoga every day at home. And I eat gorgeous food that is going to energize me. After years and years of like everything, I'm working out what the calories are, how many times I have to mm -hmm. run up and down the stairs because I had an angel delight. That madness, if you are listening now and you are sick and tired of feeling sick and tired of being on this hamster wheel, then just make a change. Make a pledge for how you might change. 
Ollie, the points that Nadia make there just seem to be so resonating with the, the contemporary world and, and, and really the last couple of decades. But the, the difference is, as she rightly said, we've got this social network, this social media side of things, the pressure where you can click on this, click on that, etc. And is that something which actually for good mental health, it really is important to take exactly as Nadia has just been saying, say, right, enough already. We're going to focus on this in terms of what's good for me personally. Absolutely. I mean, I could not agree with with you more, Nadia. We are totally in sync on this. And I think it's so much pressure. And yes, yeah, social media has exacerbated that tremendously. And what we see, we tend to believe, right? There is this message, even when we know these things, by seeing them, there's this idea that that is what we are meant to want. And that's what we should be doing. And really, that couldn't be further from the truth, which, again, is why this pledge with David Lloyd is so important, because they're saying we are not going to do that. We're not going to have people who are doing that and not being honest about what's happening, because it, it's, it's really not helpful for anybody, not for our bodies and not for our minds. Yeah, And clearly, in terms of marketing, just as snake oil used to be sold back in the Wild West days as a cure <laughs> for everything, you get this kind of thing that's, that's been working through that. Nadia, is it a case of also tapping into our inner bovine stuff sense that we know when bovine stuff is being fed to us, we think actually enough already, although that is pretty challenging? It is, it's really challenging. I mean, my, my, you know, I was, I was just looking, my daughter was showing me some films the other day, some videos on TikTok, and the, and the claims were ludicrous. Mm-hmm. And, she, you know, we have a very open household. You know, I'm a loose woman. I talk about everything. <laughs> and, um, and I was just really, I asked her to re-show me some of these films she's been showing me over the last few months. And she said, well, why? Am I? I mean, they do work. I just don't want to do them. They do work. I was like, oh, my God, here I am thinking that I'm giving all this positive, positive, you know, uh, imaging and positive chat. And yet she has been sucked into that. And Mm -hmm. she actually believes that if you if you do what this girl does, she can't be bothered. Thank God. Then you're going to get a waist that's 10 inches with a Kim Kardashian butt. And Mm -hmm. you're not. You're not. It's it's physiologically impossible. I mean, I didn't do biology GCSE even, but I'm pretty sure you can't get an 18-inch waist and a Kim Kardashian bum by, doing, by you know, standing on a wall and doing very weird exercises. But it's going into our kids. It's going in. And I think, as I said, my role is to just keep doing what I'm doing. You know, I go on my Instagram. I show myself in every way that possible. The world doesn't stop turning if somebody sees your cellulite. It doesn't matter if you've got a bit of saggy skin. What matters is... Are you cardio? Are you pumping your heart? Are you eating well? Are you doing something that makes you feel joyful? That's what's important. So that's the only way I feel like I can. I'm the biggest social media influencer of my children. I have to counteract what they're seeing. Mm-hmm. If I sit them down and go, now listen, you know, none of this was really going to, I have to show them. And I have to hope that I'm their top social influencer, even though they'd never admit it. <laughs> Absolutely. And maybe as we approach the Chinese New Year, we need to actually make that as our New Year's resolution. That we actually yeah. work on that premise. So yeah. uh, the David Lloyd Pledge, let's go back to Holly. What's the best way to actually find out details about that? And how can people actually find out more ways in which they can kind of go for this much more sensible approach to being healthy and well, as opposed to following fitness fads? Absolutely. So back onto the website. So davidlloyd.co.uk and you can come up with this pledge and all of this positivity 
that David Lloyd's going for. And if you want to see me weight training, go to my Instagram tonight (laughs) at Nadia (laughs) Swan. You see, see Nadia, that would probably probably make an ideal TikTok as well. You can have the dance moves and everything, you know, exactly. (laughs) Just a whole new world on that side of things there. Um, However, (laughs) life continues. Nadia Sawala and Holly Rubin. It's been a delight sharing some thoughts with your good self. I think some very worthy lines put together. Very briefly, Holly, is this something which also affects men as well from the point of view of, again, because I have a sense that actually does. We tend to panic, although we may not admit it as much as, as perhaps we should. Your sense is correct. Yes, it absolutely affects men, even more so than it used to. So unfortunately, those numbers are going up too. But same messaging for men and for women that about long term sustainable health as opposed to these quick fixes. They don't work. Holly Robin and Nadia Sawala, huge thanks. Keep on keeping on and stay healthy, folks. Thank you. No, thanks, Alex. Time for more movie thoughts, reviews, and royal commentary from Richard Fitzwilliams and Natasha Wanton on the Midweek Drive. I've never actually met Natasha or spoken with Natasha, so I don't know if I'm pronouncing Natasha's last name correctly. But I do know Natasha is a very talented individual, and I'm never wrong about these things. Also, little known fact, Richard Fitzwilliams now prefers to be called Richie. Well, we've celebrated 125 years of Blue Cross, the veterinary service, which started off in 1897. And thanks to Nadia Sawala, of course, and Holly Rubin for explaining how uh, uh, we should actually not get too bogged down with those New Year resolutions and so on and so forth. So how can we build on the whole sequence by actually moving a couple of stages further, as you've just heard from the IDENT in terms of the fabulous uh, Midweek Drive Morning Edition and our film review slot and so on, where we've already got Natasha Armstrong Strong, Kathy Manso, and of course Richard Fitzwilliams on board. Well, uh, a couple of movies will be considered, and I'll just actually, before Richard comes into this, uh, cite one of the comments from the Have You Say areas uh, that responded to uh, the first of these two movies that we're going to actually consider. Uh, Don't watch if you're a woman with any self-respect. You will feel nauseous by the end. The husband's actions and betrayal are never questioned. The women never show any anger towards him for his behavior, even though it's thoroughly warranted, with the son by his mistress more or less abandoned by him. Puke-inducing moments include the wife lovingly burying her hand in Alex, the reason I'm objecting is that you've just given away a very, very important spoiler. You mustn't do that. That is a spoiler. That not is exactly not, the, it's something not exa- simply must not be revealed, even if it may be obvious when you watch the film. I'm, I'm simply citing from work which is in the public domain and indeed the other line that's also stated, dreadfully overrated Borefest. Uh, we're referring to a movie which bizarrely Mark Commode seemed to like. I don't know whether Richard Fitzwilliams will acknowledge this or whether he'll also say, what a dreadfully overrated Borefest. And please, can we have something other when women directors are directing to actually have somebody lying in the midst of the ocean? Because it was already done by Olivia Coleman being washed over with various other bits and pieces. And anyway, you're confusing two films, uh, and that is very, very confusing to everybody, apart from the fact that the piece you read out, as I say, um, it, it reveals an important part of the plot. And one of the reasons that when I see... Um, when I honestly, go- Richard, if you don't identify that plot spoiler within five minutes of this movie, then literally you must have issues. That's all I can say. 
Uh, but there are those, no doubt, who do, and there are those who do not have issues, Alex. But it ought to be up to the individual, as you know perfectly well, and you're playing devil's advocate. Indeed, you haven't even got a straight face. You're deliberately... Before you get to this, can I just can I ask the team, Richard, Kathy Manso, first and foremost, have you seen After Love? I have not seen After Love. Okay, Sarah Huntley, I would also echo your thoughts about last week in Munich. I'd give it an 8 out of 10. Really good. This one, not so much. 4 out of 10 from me. But have you seen After Love, Sarah Huntley? Well, I'm sorry to disagree with you here, Alex, but I, I, after our wonderful um, Mr Fitzgerald's... Um, Fitzwilliams. Fitzwilliams. Um, sorry, Fitzwilliams' um, ideas. I watched on Friday night the... Munich, um, you know, the Jeremy Irons one. I can't remember, the, what was the title called? Munich, uh, Munich Edge of Munich, War. Munich, Edge of War. I keep calling it Edge of War. And it was fantastic. Yeah. And I would give it an, an 11 out oh, of 10 oh, oh. because it's one of the first films I've seen in a long time, which I'm sure the rest of us panel, everyone listening, despite all the things that are going on, worry about jobs, pandemics, I was on the edge of my seat. I had to, I had to need to taste myself with another wine because I was so worried at one point they're all going to get shot. Then I thought, well, they are. Um, but it, it, what I'm trying to say is there's a particular word for it, and I'm not an academic, when you're taken completely out of yourself in a film. I don't know what that word is. Suspension but, of disbelief. Uh, not just that. It, it, it takes you somewhere else is the, the sort of word I'm saying. Transcendence. So, yes. Um, so I would... I would say, please, everybody watch that because no, it, I, I, I don't it, disagree. I said eight out of uh, ten. But I, instead of giving it an eight out of ten, last week's, I'm sorry, I'm changing. Now I've seen it. I would give eleven out of ten. Wow, to that. wow, there we are. Yeah, there well, we are. <laughs> Sarah, to, to be fair, mathematics was never your strong point. But no, let's no, move no, to, no. Let's let's move on to Richard and uh, talk about this particular one, which I have to say I give a four out of ten to, right from the off. After love. Uh, well, you see, I haven't taken quite the... I'm absolutely delighted that that Sarah uh, enjoyed uh, Munich Edge of War as much as she did. I thought it was absolutely fascinating, I, and I do agree with what she says. Um, so far as After Love's concerned, I mean, I, I agree it is a very, very slow film. I would call it a slow burner. It's also, you read out a negative, uh, a couple of negative comments. Uh, one of them, as I say, uh, was far, far too um, detailed. This is one of the reasons I just want to make the general point that when I see a movie, and this, this can work against you uh, because sometimes a film is based on a true story or autobiographical or something you ought to know. And very often I don't know this because simply I you can't you can't see any part of any review it seems um, and this has been the case for years uh, even in the week which is very useful without a spoiler or something I would prefer not to know however obvious it might be um, being um, being included uh, I just to mention, this is the debut by Alim Khan. Uh, he's the director and writer. Uh, it's part autobiographical. And we follow the fortunes, or otherwise, of Mary Hussein, played by Joanna Scanlon, who says she's a white English 
Muslim who converted to marry Ahmed, played by Nasser Mimbazia, uh, and his work takes him back and forth to France. Uh, when he suddenly dies, uh, she discovers uh, a very incriminating material. Uh, if you have a mistress, don't leave messages that may incriminate you on your mobile. If you do die suddenly, this could be followed up. And indeed, we follow Mary as she literally becomes, well, she her whole life has been involved, and this is one of the reasons for the critiques, uh, linked to her husband with him gone, she decides to discover what was happening on the other side of uh, the channel in Calais, the White Cliffs of Dover, which the director believes are very symbolic of hope. Nonetheless, here, when she keeps pacing them, this is the way she used to watch for his return, uh, and she keeps listening to that mobile uh, message, uh, it's perfectly obvious that they have very, very ambiguous merit. And when she goes into a, an unknown to her territory and country, um, she actually, this, this again requires a certain suspension of disbelief. She offers herself as a cleaning lady to the person who was her late husband's <laughs> mistress. Because now, this inevitably might... that's what happens in real life, isn't it, Richard? Uh, I, I agree. I did say a certain suspension of belief is required, and indeed it is. Um, and then there is not only uh, the sophisticated, it, it, it's interesting that there are two very, very contrasting women here locked in a battle that initially one of them doesn't even know is being fought. Genevieve, played by Natalie Richard, there's the French mistress, uh, and indeed she's the very opposite of Mary. She's a urban sophisticate. The thing is that she and her relationship between her and her son Solomon, uh, I'm ignoring anything you've said, uh, Alex, uh, played by Talid Aris. Um, he's gay, he's edgy, he's deeply unhappy. The two hate each other and or she, he particularly hates her. And Mary manages to inveigle herself into this household uh, with um, offering her services as a cleaner and is... Well, to be fair, Richard, she doesn't offer her services. She's mistaken as being a cleaner by the French mistress. Uh, well, I mean... And she doesn't deny it. A cleaner doesn't deny it. A cleaner is what she becomes. And here's the thing. Servants are very often considered invisible. Well, as this sort of almost invisible presence who becomes anything but invisible, of course, because there's drama, very late in this film, I have to say, um, this, this gives her an insight into precisely the other side of the channel and what's been happening. Uh, it's an intriguing plot, and it, in the last part of it, I thought it worked rather well. Uh, it has been, I would say praise because there's a take on religion. Uh, Mary has sublimated herself and she, she was converted. She also her life to very much to around her husband. And you find that uh, the fact that a male who for the most part does not appear in the much in the film, uh, who dies, is the dominant presence. Nonetheless, it doesn't alter for the fact that the fact, in my opinion, that this is a very, very intriguing 
plot and it's got more drama in it than what we're coming to subsequently, which is the highly praised um, movie, uh, The Lost Daughter. I, but bottom line, I, I felt it was 80 minutes of my life, which basically seemed like eight years. But don't let me actually influence you. Uh, yes, After agree. Love. The first half hour, I would, would say, the first half hour is terribly slow. But I'd go to seven and a half out of ten. Yeah. Uh, Three and a half more than me. Uh, yes, uh, but also it's a very good performance by Joanna Scanlon as Mary. I think you would agree she's exceptionally good. And also the whole cast do their uh, play their roles very well. It's an interesting, unusual, very slow film, but it's not terribly long. And it, visually there are certain delights. I, I found it interesting. It's about identity and about remorse and loss and class and religion and of course there's the refugees element of crossing the channel and so forth so you know you've got quite a few messages. And the metaphysical version of the White Cliffs of Dover collapsing and the drips of the plaster falling down on the ceiling and the immersion in water and the baptism ceremonies and the opening of the christening and the shaving of the heads it's all in there but to what purpose? Uh, frustration, Yaz, will it fly in Bermuda? You know, no. <laughs> and I love the way you actually pause there for dramatic effects. Natasha, what are your thoughts? Is After Love One, you're now going to be saying, hmm, I think I should go with that. I think just firstly, um, if I could just refer back to a point Richard sort of made at the start of his comment, um, I do agree that it is very difficult nowadays to sort of anticipate the buildup of a film without having too much revealed. I find even with trailers nowadays, I sort of watch the first trailer and then I try and cut off watching the second and the third one because I feel like there is just far too much information being given in a lot of advertisement for films. So not even the reviews, but even the stuff that's meant to, you know, tease you it's just sort of overwhelming you with all the information so yeah I would agree that's a massive problem um but yeah in terms of this film this puts me in a predicament because when I watched the trailer for this I actually thought this looks really interesting um I'm quite intrigued by the plot it seems although it seems quite fantastical it also doesn't seem so bizarre that it couldn't happen because right strange things happen in real life it was something that seems sort of realistic and at the same time different Having unfortunately listened to, to your review, Alex, um, I'm sort of now a little bit kind of... The, the, the flip side is Mark Commode has watched it three, in th I think five times now. He's still enjoying it. So personally, I think there are better things to do with one's life, even though it is on the BFI channel and you can access it through Amazon Prime. I will, I will probably watch it at some point. Um, I'm not sure sort of whether I'd be rushing to see it but I would, I think it's something that I would like to sit down when I have a time to really engross myself in something. I think I would. You only need 80 minutes, although I warn you, it'll feel like eight years. Sarah, um, is this I, one I, for you? I think I'd second, I thought Natasha put it very brilliantly. Um, I think I'd second what Natasha's saying, but having said which, we all have areas that we find more interesting than others. So going to what Richard was saying, it's an insight into a different world and a different style of living. So that's fascinating. It's all what's on the menu and what you fancy at the time, isn't it, really? Yes. Cathy, uh, one for you. Well, I mean, you really know how to sell it. Um, <laughs> so 
I'm not exactly going to be rushing over to watch it, <laughs> but I am curious to see just so I can, I don't know. I don't know which way I'm going to lean. Am I going to lean more mm. towards Alex or am I going to lean more towards Richard Fitzwilliams? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, this, this could be an interesting yeah. thing. First, I think we should actually wait until Maggie Gyllenhaal actually produces something because in The Lost Daughter, once again, Maggie, from uh, so many wonderful things together with uh, uh, the uh, awesomeness who plays Her Majesty the Queen so well, in thing, I think, in The Crown and has done so many heaps of good things as an Academy Award winner and generally all-round wonderful soul uh, is, is part of this, this whole uh, system. Of course, Olivia Coleman is who I'm referring to. Um, the Lost Daughter challenging but at the same time well worth a six out of ten for me richard i wish alex i wish but this was a film i was really looking forward to and uh, you're amused no 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 uh, i may maggie gillenhall is indeed an excellent actress but that is not in dispute but what is in dispute as far as i'm concerned is the merit of the film that i have to admit has received extremely good reviews Olivia Coleman's character, Elida, named after a mythological creature, Elida in the Swan. Um, Lida is holidaying in Greece. She's a noted college professor and translator, Lida Caruso, played by Olivia Coleman, who meets Nina, played by Dakota Johnson. And also, Nina's three year old daughter disappears, Elena disappears fleetingly. But what does Elena lose? She loses her doll, a doll that she's very fond of. Lida has taken the doll. Now, why? It's what all professors of uh, history are prone to do every so often, particularly if they're into literature and having affairs when they're on academic conferences. It's so true to life, I can't believe it, really. Alex, I'm looking forward to your memoirs revealing the... Yeah, I, I don't lecture in, in history or indeed literature. I uh, just wanted to make that quite clear. Well, I have to say that there's some interesting flashbacks in this movie because obviously Lida taking the doll is pretty weird. And we meet Lida uh, when she's young, played by the marvellous Jessie Buckley. Um, she had problems being a mother to her two daughters. In fact, she abandoned them. Well, we... But Richard, she knows how to peel an orange like a snake. Uh, very possibly. I also read that, Alex. Uh, but yes, we find her pursued by Lyle, played by Ed Harris, who sees that she's got the doll, but he doesn't need to do anything about it. So there's obviously something very, very strange that's going on. Now, Nina is having an affair with Will, that's in the holiday resort, played by Paul Mescal. She says her husband, played by Olivia Jackson Coleman, uh, is rather controlling. And they're still searching for Elena's doll. And they've got a pink villa, Richard. What's not, always the big warning sign if you've got a pink villa? Uh, she tells Nina that she's abandoned her daughters uh, when she had an affair, when she was an academic, she still is, of course, but with another professor played by the ever-reliable Peter Sarsgaard. Fascinating aspect of this movie is the excellence of the supporting cast. Uh, one of the, as I arrive at my conclusion in a minute, I would mention that as a huge plus. But she knows that when Nina and... Will, uh, Nina and, uh, and Will want to borrow 
her apartment to have sex in it, it's starting to work on her. There's something that she's almost, it's an instability in her character that she has to reveal that she'd been an unnatural mother and actually tells Nina that she took the doll. Now, what happens will not be revealed. I'm not That's Alex, bad. and he'd be telling you the entire plot and adding all the details. In fact, it <laughs> should be quite a mystery. It will remain a mystery here. But one of the aspects of this movie that's interesting is it deals, for example, with loss, it deals with remorse, it deals with memory, and also what is fundamentally important, the things in life that really mean something to us. You've got a wonderful supporting cast. You've got Jessie Buckley as the young leader. She's absolutely excellent. As I've mentioned, poor um, Dakota Johnson, Ed Harris, a very amiable part, doesn't fetch him, but she's very good. And there is a problem in this movie, however. There are two problems. Uh, the first one, I do admire Olivia Coleman in The, the Favourite as Queen Anne. She was superb in the in the hotel manager, she was wonderful. I didn't, as um, some may remember that I, we, when we dealt with this before, I didn't think she was good with the Queen in the third and fourth series because she was very sour, she lacked dignity, and she was playing some, someone who is not cold and aloof and uncaring as precisely that. Uh, oh, I don't she, know, Richard. There are people who might disagree. Meghan Markle, for instance. Uh, maybe, uh, but very few people, if you look at the Queen's rating, I think it's 83% of the last poll, Alex, I, I poll from yesterday, actually. Deadly terrible. You can't rate monarchy on a Rotten Tomatoes scale, Richard. I'm saying that you were saying that some people might disagree, and I was telling you very few people would disagree. Uh, but I would, back to the movie... Um, it's Coleman at the heart of this has got to be an interesting character. And... I found her somebody where there was a gap, a distance. I didn't, I didn't empathise with her. She's like, traumatised, Richard. She's still uh, suffering from postnatal depression several years down the line. I know if you went into a cinema and you had a bunch of rowdy uh, Greek-oriented lads creating no end of mayhem, you'd be upset as well. No wonder she took I, the doll. I might well be, and I might well have treated my family as she did, and I might indeed have all the regrets that she had, and I might indeed start stealing dolls, which you say is common to the professorial profession. That's another very interesting topic. But here is another problem this movie has, and that is in its script. So as Maggie Gyllenhaal has got, as I say, good reviews for this, where you've got the vacuum... <laughs> <laughs> where, you've, where you've got the vacuum, very good, Alex, very good. Uh, <laughs> you've got a vacuum, a serious vacuum, is in caring what happens. And the reason for this, despite the fact visually it's obviously it's decided it's quite rather good. And as I say, you've got very, very good actors involved. It isn't the drama that it needs. So as I think... People would be interested in this film. I wouldn't put anyone off because most people who've seen it have enjoyed it. I came up feeling actually rather irritated with it because it didn't it didn't grip me as mm. and the central character and the beginning of the film does link with the end, which Alex has just referred to, though those who haven't seen it wouldn't realize. Uh, the, I just felt... I just think any movie that can have as a strap line, Olivia Coleman meets Chucky is wonderful. And, you know, just on that basis alone, 
It's, uh, it's, it's child's play, quite simply. Uh, yes, uh, The Lost Daughter, highly likely to be an Academy Award winner, already picking up lots of awards and such like. What are your thoughts? Uh, you know, I think I would prefer to watch the previous one than to this one. Um, I think the other one was more uh, interesting. And um, even though it was a slow burner, but this one. Mm. It I is shorter, know. I suppose, although it doesn't feel like that. I mean, uh, The Lost Daughter comes in two hours, two minutes. Uh, and of course, After Love, uh, a little over 80 minutes or 80 years in some instances. Sarah, The Lost Daughter. I mean, actually, technically, you could say there are two daughters in here because obviously, uh, Leader's character, played by Jesse Buckley, does actually have two daughters, unless, of course, you're referring to the doll as a special daughter and the other daughter who's short, who's, who's lost, but only for a short period of time before indeed she's tracked down because she's wearing her mother's hat, which of course, uh, most people, if you're wearing mother's hat, should always wear a hat pin, which actually Olivia is actually stabbed with in one point hey, of the hey, sequence. Hey, no, no, Alan, no, you, you really, 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 I must protest. This is another spoiler and that <laughs> deliberately I didn't mention what happened to the Mexican. You must not tell Listeners, oh, what really? happens in the movie? Alex, you but just do this on purpose. Absolutely <laughs> outrageous. So, so Sarah, will, is, is this one that appeals? The rest of the gang, well said there, Kathy. You're being very naughty today. And I should explain to the listener the chuckling of the laughter earlier on was because Alex is holding up a doll, his end, that he's stolen the doll. Um, but what I <laughs> hold up at my end, Sarah, is none of your business, honestly. Ooh. Carry on. <laughs> Well, for now, for now, as the actress said to the bishop. Um, I, well, my friend Richard here, I did watch the trailer before we, I knew we were going to talk about this on this particular programme. I like Olivia Coleman, but I did get a bit from the trailer that she was, you're meant to believe or take from that character, a very mixed up, confused person. And, you know, there's a saying, isn't he it? He sings... Though? Living on a Prayer, a John, Bo jo John Bon Jovi classic. What's not to appreciate? You've got Olivia Coleman singing uh, John bon, bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer. Yeah, but I think, um, just being serious for a moment, in order to get something out of the film, it seems like from what Richard's saying, you have to engage with Olivia Coleman's character to follow her journey. And just from the trailer I got, there's a saying, isn't it? You're either a lover or a mother in the sense that you, you, you might be married and love your children, but I, I'm definitely a mother myself. So automatically I'm intrigued by someone that would leave their children. And I just got from the trailer that perhaps by watching the whole film, I still was never going to unravel the type of person Olivia Coleman's character was in order to do that. And that would be very unsatisfactory for me because mm. I think when you watch a film, it, it's always interesting if say, um, you know, uh, I, I don't think there has been a film like this, thank God, but if, if there was a film about um, Hitler and somebody did it from the point of view of why he did all the things he did. Because he didn't get into art school. It's a well-known fact, he was upset. <laughs> but I'm trying to make an extreme example. I don't know if the others of you agree. It's quite fascinating to watch something on someone that you don't hold their beliefs, you don't understand, but you can understand from their personal background plus events that happened in their life, possibly a choice of routes that they took that other people didn't. 
But I kind of feel without watching this film that perhaps that's not going to unravel with Olivia Colman's character for me. So I think I prefer the other one from the description. Mm. Uh, Kathy. So I did watch this film and oh. I was really engaged with the character, but I think because it's, it's kind of like you said, I'm not a mother and that's probably why I engaged with her more. I enjoyed the perspective, especially since when you watch the film, there's this theme of like, there's a, I think there's always an expectation that, you know, what mom is never, is going to say that they don't love their children and to get something that was so different where it's like, it's not about not loving your children. It's just that it's talking about the things that I don't think mothers express freely because they would be seen so awful, you know, like I'm tired. They're driving me crazy. I can't even have a moment to think of myself. It's all the negative aspects with a bit of love and caring and things like that you know it's I, I found it just to be very honest very real when she goes through uh, especially when she's reliving certain moments because she's reliving them through the other characters um and I don't know because I'm not a mom I don't know how honest it is in, in a sense you know <laughs> so it's one of those things where it's like it's refreshing to know that this is a bit it was open in that way, like to talk about the things that people don't actually talk about because they would be seen as, uh, oh, you don't, you don't care or you're awful or terrible. And it's like, no, that's not exactly it. It's just, you're dealing with a lot of emotions. And, and she only left her children for three years. That's all. <laughs> I mean, you know. Not only left her children for three years, but said it was amazing. Um, <laughs> you know, like, but. It's just a know. long sabbatical in academic terms. Yeah. <laughs> well, and she left for three years, but I, I thought that was when the, someone asked her like, okay, but like, how'd you go back if it was so amazing? She's like, well, I'm selfish and I miss them. I was like, that's like, that's an answer I can truly get behind. Like <laughs> that made sense to me, you know, and in that sense, I think the most infuriating part and without revealing too much, because, you know, I don't, I don't want to get into a fight with Richard Fitzwillings, not at all, um, <laughs> is the ending. I was like, not okay with the ending. <laughs> The, I, I wanted more out of it <laughs> and they didn't give me that. And now I'm supposed to assume or <laughs> guess or, <laughs> and that, that, that drove me a little bit crazy. But um, also this is a big film where I like to say, this is why I'm such an advocate for therapy. Go to therapy. It's important. <laughs> therapy is important. Talk, talk to people. <laughs> Back in the day, of course, we used to have confession. We still do, of course, but you have to sort of be able to cut certain sort of low line to go through that. Kathy, what's your score? I'm going to give it a 6.5. 6.5. I gave it a 6. Uh, 6 for me, 6.5 for myself. Uh, oh, can... Yeah, well, there we are. Interesting. Okay, we move on to David Suchet. Have you worked with him at all, uh, Sarah, in terms of uh, the grand scheme of, uh, I think, one of Richard's favourite uh, actors and and and, uh, and and folk, etc., in the sort of filing closing theatrical thing he's going to chat about. No, I've never worked with him. I've met him a couple of times because he um, has very kindly come along to Lambda, which is the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, um, to help with the syllabus and promoting the syllabus for that. And he's been very engaging and very humble, I would say. So that's all my experience of him. So moving on from that, Richard, would you like to share with us uh, in the remaining few moments that we actually have uh, the David Suchet, Poirot and more, a retrospective at the Harold Pinter Theatre? 
Yes, indeed, because uh, this is indeed an act I'm very, very keen on. I've followed his theatrical roles for many, many years. Of course, world famous is um, his, his uh, creation, Hercule Poirot. We learn a good deal about his life and his background. Yes, indeed, he was educated at Lambda and feels a deep commitment to it. And indeed, there were quite a few students from Lambda. And afterwards, he, this was fascinating. He get, there were, we, we were there for an extra 20 minutes, half an hour, where he was talking about aspects of theater and so forth. And there are various parts to this talk about his life, about uh, understanding and playing Shakespeare, how he plays his roles, particularly Poirot, um, which, uh, I mean, the trustees of Agatha Christie, uh, they wanted him taken, this character taken seriously, and they realized that David Suchet was the person to do it, which indeed he is. He's his notes in the program, it's that fascinating reading of the 93 points uh, that he detected about Poirot. I mean, he's an actor who's famous for uh, getting to grips in a very, very cerebral way with uh, the roles he plays. And, and Poirot, we see how he creates his walk and an extraordinary moment where he actually shows us how Poirot speaks, how he got the accent and so forth. Uh, because Poirot is a serious character as Agatha Christie envisaged him. And if you look at the likes of uh, Albert Finney, say in that ridiculous murder on the Orient Express, uh, this was a, a sort of a, a comic uh, and rather ridiculous figure. Uh, there, there's part of this uh, evening, uh, which uh, is a, is a Q&A with, with a friend of his, Jeffrey Wansell, who's a broadcaster, bringing out some of his past life, but also looking at Shakespeare and also some wonderful moments. Uh, he reenacts a scene from Amadeus where he plays the Salieri, a musician at the court who's horrified by the way uh, God has given Mozart powers that he never had, and also the last confession where he plays Cardinal Bonelli. I mean, one of the aspects of David Suchet's um, performance always fascinated me, his strong voice, you can always hear every word he says, and the stage presence second to none. So I've seen him do Arthur Miller, I saw his Salieri in Amadeus, uh, he's done a large number of films, and uh, it's it's absolutely fascinating. He's also been a friend for years, and he's someone who he invests his roles with this, this amazing amount of research. For example, he challenges the audience if they were playing a role. If he played a role, say he played Iago, he would also, to understand what the playwright meant when Iago was included in that play, or indeed any other role, read the play without the particular role to try and understand the motivations of the others, how much is in the play without you, so to speak. And that helps you un to understand what very possibly might have been meant and gives you an extra interpretation. For example, he quotes Oscar Wilde and uh, when he played Lady Bracknell, one time that uh, he's played a comedy and a role of that sort, but he, which gave him an extra significance to a handbag and what Wilde might have meant with its links to 
gay activities at the time. And Except so I'd have to say, Richard, it's a handbag. Anyway, that, uh, yes, yes, that and, was, and Sarah could deliver the line much more importantly from that point of view. So, so we'll have the Prior and Me, of course, is available by David Suchet as a book if you don't get to see it uh, at the Ambassador's Theatre. Uh, and Natasha, would it be one that would encourage the, you to fly Harold, back to Britain? At the Harold Pinter's Theatre. The Harold Pinter Theatre. Thank you, Richard. The, 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 would you be checking it out or would you be checking out the novel or the, the book? I definitely love to read the book. This is really interesting. Um, I, I do like. I wasn't aware that obviously he'd done things outside of that because you sort of sometimes you sort of see actors uh, in a role and you sort of that's all they sort of appear as when you conjure them in your head. Some people see Sarah Huntley just as Rosie the anaesthetist. I know it's a shocker, but what the (laughs) hey. But no, I would um, I would definitely like to read the book. It's just fascinating listening to Richard talk then just about you know, his interpretations of Shakespeare and, and whatnot. So just just getting drawn in by this two minutes of sort of Richard talking, although that's not difficult. Um, I would very much like to read. Um, yeah, I'd very much like to read this book. It sounds so one, one for yourself. You are wrong, but you are right. I would definitely like to go. Um, and I think I'd love to go and see it in person, actually, because um, he is a he is a fascinating man um, and um Gosh, Richard, how lucky you are to have him as a friend. I've got a little book that a student gave me as a thank you because he absolutely adored David Suchet. Um, and it's it's all Poirot's sayings, which is rather good. So each day you look at one and it will have something quite brilliant um, on there. I didn't realise he'd given up his lady Bracknell. Um, but um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I personally Wilde would t- is... turn to the works of Jean-Luc Picard or indeed Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Similar quotes that help you through life. Uh, Kathy. My bad. <laughs> I need to read it and I need to watch it. You, I'm in. <laughs> and, Nothing and, about fi- <laughs> and finally, yes. Um, yeah, I also um, definitely would like to watch it too. There we are. We've got finally a uniformity, which is wonderful. Natasha Armstrong, Sarah Huntley, Kathy Manso, and Yaz de Graaf, and of course Richard Fitzwilliams. Huge thanks. Keep watching those movies, but probably don't go and see After Love. No, what the hey? Um, <laughs> I have You're to. Being very I, naughty. I, so, sorry, Sarah. He's being very naughty. He needs to be kept under control, Richard. I, I, I'm wondering how, you know, if Robin Pierce was here, he and I could combine, so maybe you and I, Sarah, can try yeah, more, I think please. We need to, Robin's got other fish to fry these one. days, Richard. Other fish to fry. Uh, I mean, so, uh, next week, I can tell you what we'll be discussing next week, so hopefully, oh. uh, hopefully, uh, some anyway, we'll be able to see Belfast. I'm going to see it this afternoon, I hope. Good, good, good. Look forward to discussing, and also... <laughs> I, I can't give a view this week, but Nightmare Alley. Oh, 